Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. When we ended the last episode, John Robinson had just left prison. The perceived business, community, and family man held a dark secret of being a manipulator, child kidnapper, and potential killer. Now that John was free, he needed money. And it wouldn't take long to kickstart his schemes again and his bloodier ambitions. These are the crimes that made your skin crawl. The missing faces you just couldn't get out of your head. The questions that never got answered. Missing and Murdered in the Midwest dives deep into these unforgettable cases, solved and unsolved. A warning to all those who tune in, these episodes cover mature and sometimes graphic content. I'm your host, Toria Wilson. Before I get into the grittier part of John Robinson's crimes, because he really ramps up after exiting prison, there are a few things I left out about who this man is. For one, while John is a unique serial killer in some sense of the word, like not having a severe head injury or killed animals, he still has many classic traits. Robinson had the classic signs of antisocial personality disorder. That doesn't mean he's a recluse or anything like that. John and many like him with the same diagnosis have a superficial charm, but they're emotionally stunted, unreliable, but they're able to put on a charade. They also have an above average intelligence. And again, this doesn't mean that John has a mental illness. He knew right from wrong. He knew the consequences of his actions, but didn't care. With that, when it comes to a serial killer, it's obviously trying to find victims. But Robinson had no issue in this field, especially later down the line when he begins to use the internet for his devious deeds. John Robinson worked very similarly to killers like John Wayne Gacy and Jeffrey Dahmer, except without the whole wanting to turn people's into zombies thing. (laughs) He'd hide his victims because obviously they would be linked to him. He would throw off police if they got remotely close to him by the letters he would send to family members with the signatures of the victims. And let's be honest, he had fallen in the cracks in the past in the legal system. He thought he was smarter and better than law enforcement, invisible in some ways. And for all those around him, from John's victims to the community to law enforcement and to his own family, John couldn't have done these things because he just didn't fit that profile. He was older, shorter, nice, not good looking, in poor health, whatever the case may be. That profile would also have some people shocked later when they found out John was into sadomasochism or BDSM, which stands for bondage, dominance, submission, and masochism. And if you don't know what that is, it's individuals who get off on inflicting physical pain or humiliation either on themselves 
or another person. Now, before you get all high and mighty and say, my Lord, who would like something like that? It's not uncommon. It's just underground. And many of these relationships are positive between a master or the dominant one and a slave or the submissive. The key to these types of relationships is trust. It's not all about inflicting pain, but being able to explore this side of sex and connection with someone who won't cause you physical harm, like being murdered or beaten to a bloody pulp. But John would be connected to a secretive underground group called the International Council of Masters, a group dedicated to these types of bonds. But it was definitely not the relationship type. John would bring in a number of new quote-unquote slaves, some willing, others not. And he was so successful, he would be named within the organization, Slave Master. And that name seems really, really important to John because he would later use it outside the realm of the organization and use it on the internet. Okay, so now that you know a little bit more about John, let's go back just before John left prison. If you remember in the last episode, John was forced to stay in prison for an extra two years after pleading to the Missouri Parole Board for mercy and getting rejected hard. So in 1991, John would be moved to Western Missouri Correctional to serve out the remainder of his time. Now this new facility is more like a minimum facility. Not too many violent criminals stay there more flexible with moving around and such. That's where John would meet Beverly Bonner, who worked in the prison library and happened to be the wife of one of the doctors within the facility. The two actually struck up a friendship after realizing they both worked at Mobile Oil years earlier. Beverly was charmed damn near instantly, especially because John would pay attention to her, listen to her, just seemed genuinely interested in the things she both did in and out of the prison walls. It didn't take long for the two of them to go from friendship to a relationship. John looked forward to getting out of prison. He wanted to restart his business ventures, travel the world, make money, and he wanted Beverly by his side while he did all of this. The only question was, did she want that? Well, apparently she didn't. After John was finally released in 1993, he still went back to his wife Nancy and four children while Beverly began the process of leaving her husband. In 1994, her divorce was finalized and she packed up her things and made the move to Kansas City to be closer to John. With the help of Beverly, John wanted to restart the business Hydroglow, a company that allegedly sold indoor gardening kits. When the papers were drawn up, Beverly was the one listed as the company's president. John's name was not there though. Obviously having his now felony conviction under his belt, he couldn't take the risk of having another business fail because of his record. But John Turner was listed as the company's secretary. This was the first time, but not the last, that Robinson would use this alias. Things were going well between the two of them, and Beverly would begin to brag about her new career path and her new lover to her mother. And at first she told her mom that his name was indeed John Robinson, but would later correct herself, saying his name was Jim Redmond. A little odd, 
but you can kind of understand it. John was a convicted criminal that Beverly met while she worked at the prison. Their connection not glorified in any sense of the word, but she was in love and didn't question their relationship. She would do what she needed to do. That included signing blank pieces of paper at John's request. John's reasoning, she was going international and letters would be sent to her family once she was overseas. And it wouldn't be long that her family would start receiving those letters describing the amazing time she was having. Postage would be marked from Europe, Amsterdam, Russia, China. The forwarding address, though, would be a mailbox at a place called the Mailroom in Kansas. Now, the box was in Beverly's name, and that was to throw Beverly's ex-husband off anything suspicious, especially since the man was sending his $1,000 monthly settlement still. Dr. Bonner would continue to do this for 18 months. There was something else that John did with Beverly's name in mind. He rented a storage locker at a place called Stormore, located in Raymore, Missouri. John's wife, Nancy, had a space rented there in the past, but John would claim he needed more room as he was holding his sister Beverly's belongings as she traveled abroad. No one questioned it. It wouldn't take long for John to come back to Stormore, this time unloading a large, sealed metal barrel. He placed it in the unit, locked it, and drove away. Beverly's friends and family never saw or heard from her ever again. But for some reason, no one questioned it until 1995, when one of her sons died. She obviously wasn't in attendance to his funeral, and that pissed off some family members. And there were a lot of assumptions as to why she was missing from this particularly important event. One, she was still traveling abroad. Or maybe she ran off with a man. What if she's dead? But if that's the case, why hasn't her body turned up? But she couldn't have disappeared. People were still getting letters from her. Some even suggested that her absence was because of John Robinson. But once again, there was no evidence linking the two together. So no one who knew Beverly went to the police and the authorities had no clue that she was missing. Now, at the same time that John had been restarting his life after prison and Beverly was making this dramatic life change to be closer to him, there was another woman who was falling for John, hook, line, and sinker on the internet. Now, it's not known how Sheila Faith was able to connect with John Robinson on the internet in 1993. All she knew in the beginning really is that he lived in Kansas or Missouri and was a farmer. But his kindness was a refresher in Sheila's life, as the past few years had been extremely tough for both her and her daughter, Debbie Faith. Debbie had been diagnosed with cerebral palsy and needed a motorized scooter to get around. Sheila and her husband, John, took good care of her. That is until 1991, when John died of cancer. Without him around, Debbie and Sheila began to struggle Sheila was only getting roughly $1,000 from Social Security, plus food stamps. The cost of Debbie's medical bills became crippling, especially as Debbie entered her teen years, and doctors discovered she actually had spina bifida. What complicated things more was Debbie weighed 200 pounds. The two would jump from home to home around California, trying to make ends meet. In 1993, 
Sheila had enough of trying to make California work, so they took off to Colorado. It was some time after this that Sheila and John's relationship took off, with John telling Sheila that he had horses on his property and would help Debbie with her therapy and any other thing they would need for Debbie's care. It was a godsend for Sheila, and John became her dream man, as she told many of her friends. In the spring of 1994, Debbie and Sheila packed up the very few belongings from their home and seemingly left town when no one was looking. Neighbors were shocked to find them moved out. Both would never be seen or heard from again. Before the faiths would take off, Sheila did ask if her neighbors could keep track of her mail, including Debbie's disability check. But even that would eventually stop coming to Colorado and neighbors would eventually find out that Sheila's mail was being forwarded on to the mailroom, the same place where Beverly Bonner's settlement checks were being sent to. That mailbox was rented by a man named John Turner, who looked a lot like John Robinson. Well, that's because it was him. The owner of the mailroom would say John had been picking up the Faith's checks since 1994. All 152 of them totaled about $80,000. Sheila's brother would also report that not long after her move, he began receiving typed letters from her, saying that she and Debbie were doing just fine. In 1995, pushing 1996, John Robinson would turn 52 years old. Sometime after his birthday, his family moved to a new mobile home park in which Nancy would be the manager of. John would later create the new business called Specialty Publications with a trade publication called Manufactured Modular Living, all about the mobile home industry. Every morning after Nancy left for work roughly around 8.30, John would turn on at least one of his five computers. And instead of promoting his new project, he would be online, in chat rooms, talking with dozens of women, but not as himself. Sometimes he was Jim Turner or JT, a successful businessman and farmer. Other times he'd go by Slave Master, visiting BDSM websites, the newest, darkest thing on the web. Slave Master was searching for a submissive with the promise that he could help these women in need. This subculture, I guess you could call it, was an escape from reality for a lot of people to step outside of their mundane lives and live a little on the edge. Some would have limits as to how much pain they could take. Safe words would be established to indicate enough was enough. But there was a sub-subculture called Gorian. No rules, no safe words. The submissive would give their entire selves over to their master. And that's the kind that John liked. That's also apparently what Alicia Cox liked. By day, she was a city receptionist with a daughter and big dreams to become a radio personality. But at night, she wanted something a little bit more dangerous. Posting in an alternative magazine called Pitch Weekly, her ad wrote, quote, straight black female looking for a mature male to take care of me. I'll take care of you, end quote. Robinson would answer this ad their agreement consisted of him paying her $2,000 a month. And in exchange, he wanted her available for sex whenever he pleased. And while she was a good submissive, 
She wasn't an idiot. And she wouldn't take a whole lot of shit outside the bedroom. But they were together for a few years, and at one point, he gave her a ring and asked her to marry him. Alicia would later ask her fiancé if he could use his influence to help her break into the radio world. Instead, John convinced her to travel overseas on business with him, to places like London, Paris, Australia. Alicia would be put up in a Best Western hotel after giving up her apartment for this big trip. But the date of the departure kept changing. He would then ask her to write out her signature with the same excuse as many other women like Lisa Stacy and Beverly Bonner had heard. They would be too busy to write to their families. The night before the two were set to leave, John showed up with a truck with a trailer hitch to the back and some clothing in the bed of the truck, which seemed odd to Alicia, since she had given up damn near everything to go on this trip. The two would go to sleep, and in the morning, Alicia would be the one to wake up first. She would wake John, which angered the hell out of him. Annoyed, John would get up, shower, get dressed, and left to run errands, telling her to meet him at a restaurant later that morning to finalize any other plans needed for their trip. But when Alicia got there, John never showed. And when she tried to call him to find out what was going on, he never answered. Unbeknownst to Alicia at this moment in time was that her life was saved by waking up early. Yeah, she didn't have a place to live or a job, but wow, what a close call. A few months later, though, Alicia would go back to John after answering another one of his ads in the paper. But by the summer of 1999, the two would drift apart as John had so many other women he was seeing online. He wasn't just shopping around locally. He had gone national, even international. Dozens and dozens of women who knew nothing of each other and very little about the farmer from Kansas but were willing to sign over their lives to be with John Robinson, much to his delight and amazement. For other women, John would try to convince them to uproot their lives and be with him in the Midwest. One such person who almost took that bait was a woman with the screen named Lorelei. Not only did the two connect on a sexual level, but on a personal one as well. She was struck by how honest and sensitive he was. So when John asked her to take their relationship out of the virtual world, she had to think about it. While she contemplated the move, John would profess that he had met another woman online, a college student who had come to Kansas City to be with him. She was goth with piercings and dark clothing, nothing like John's farmer attire. He was embarrassed to be seen with this young girl and decided to send her back to Indiana from which he came and eventually Lorelai would lose interest. But Isabel Lewicka was a true story. Born in Poland, her family moved to Indiana in 1993. By 1997, she was 18 years old and was growing more and more interested in the BDSM world. She struck up a relationship with an international book agent who wanted to hire her as a secretary while teaching her how to be a master on the side. She took that offer, and in the summer of that year, decided to pack up and leave Indiana. Once she left, communication with her family was very limited, believing they were disapproving of what she was doing. 
For two months, they heard nothing until the emails began. Isabella's father didn't believe that it was her and would write to her in Polish, but most of her replies would be short and distant. Not long after coming to Kansas City, Isabella filed a marriage license with a man named John Anthony Robinson. That's not his full name, and the birthday he also gave was not correct, but the couple would never fully tie the knot. But she would give her last name hyphenated with the two and would brag about her relationship with an older man. When the two were together, though, John would introduce Isabella as an adopted daughter or distant cousin. And while they weren't married, they did have a slave contract with more than 100 provisions attached to it. And in return, John would keep her financially afloat. Isabella would eventually begin to meet other people in town as John was too preoccupied with other women in person and online. She would later begin some sort of affair with a man named Eric Collins, who was into vampire role play. I know, super sexy. While all this was going on, Isabella's parents were just terrified for their daughter and would continue to only get vague and later only English replies in their email. In the fall of 1999, Isabella told her parents she was never coming home. She also told, in person, a friend of hers that she was moving away. It wouldn't be long that that goth girl who was seen with John Robinson was no longer around. Those who would ask John about it would be told that she was caught smoking marijuana and was deported. Even Nancy Robinson noticed her absence since she worked for John. And there were fears that John would leave her for this younger, outlandish girl, but honestly, that was never the case. Nancy was truly John's anchor. And by this time in his life, John was in his mid-50s, balding, fatter, hair turning gray, just overall a bland man. He was still very active on the internet and all five of his computers that never slowed down for a second. Around the same time Isabella disappeared, another woman would be joining John in real life, Suzette Troughton. She and John would meet in a chat room in the spring of 1999. They would talk regularly, not just about sex, but employment and financial hardships. It was around this time that John, known to her as JR or Slave Master, would ask Suzette if she'd be willing to move to Kansas City and take care of his ill health father named Papa John. But Suzette wasn't just friends online with JR. Laura Remington and Tammy Taylor were two women who Suzette befriended on chat rooms, all on BDSM. Laura and Suzette would eventually have a sexual relationship in person at one point, but their friendship remained strong. And so when Suzette would explain in February of 2000 that she was packing up her things and her two dogs and moving in with JR, her friends sort of advised her not to do it. Their explanation? you shouldn't mix business with pleasure. When she arrived around Valentine's Day, things were rocky. That job didn't happen, the apartment non-existent, a car that was promised never fulfilled. She was put up in a long extended stay hotel. Every now and again, JR would show up, ask for sexual favors, snap dirty pictures, whatever he wanted and she obliged. As the weeks went by and nothing happened, Suzette wondered if she really made a mistake doing this move. She was totally alone. Her dogs were locked up, and JR was nowhere around. 
But John would show up again at the end of February, telling her to prepare for her first big business trip to California before setting sail on a trip to Hawaii and Australia, all on his yacht. In preparation, John, or JR, would make Suzette sign 30 blank sheets of paper and address 40 envelopes. It was the same excuse as many of the other women. They would have no time to write to their families. When they weren't preparing for the trip, John brought a video camera and recorded an extremely graphic sexual encounter between the two of them. At the end of that tape, which a jury would later see, an ironic moment. Right at the end of this sex tape, it would cut from a shot of this hotel room to a clip from Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory, from slave master to doting grandfather. March 1st is the last time Laura Remington, Suzette's online friend, would speak to her friend. Just before noon, John would pick up Suzette's dogs from the kennel they were placed in. He would also stop at the Needmore storage facility in Olaf. He dropped some things off and he would return to the mobile home park in which his wife worked at and abandon Suzette's dogs. A day later, John would reassemble Suzette's computer that she had torn down when she was leaving for her trip. He tried to figure out just how she communicated. Days later, John, under Suzette's accounts, would begin to message her mother. Thankfully, Carol Troughton knew her daughter. She knew her daughter sucked at typing and just had a gut feeling something was wrong. Weeks later, and still no answer from her daughter, she became concerned and would contact police in Kansas. A detective told Carol to hold on to all emails they had gotten from Suzette. Carol would also bring up that Suzette never left anywhere without her dogs. If they weren't with her, there was a huge problem. That detail piqued an officer's curiosity and searched if any dogs had recently been adopted in the area. Dan and Vicki Wagner did, and police wanted to stop by and see if this was one of the dogs they were looking for. When officers called the name Tara, which is what the new owners named her, the dog didn't respond. But when they tried the name Pika, the dog came running. So they were certain that they had one dog and would later find the second. But where was Suzette? Well, Carol had a clue. Something that none of the other victims' families had before. Suzette gave her mom Robinson's home phone, cell phone, and pager number before she left to live near him. Extremely out of character for this man. When Carol contacted him, John Robinson was stunned. He was extremely caught off guard, but he quickly recovered, telling her that Suzette didn't take his job offer and was sailing around the world with Jim Turner. Carol was not happy with that answer, so Carol continued to work with police. But so was Laura Remington and Tammy Taylor, the online friends of Suzette Troughton, the two taking it upon themselves to talk to Robinson and try to get him to stumble. It was the first time police were using the help of civilians, way more tech savvy than them, to hunt down a potential killer. It was something Stephen Haynes had also been doing long before these women had stepped up. A task force would contact Haynes asking him to speak 
about his own investigation on Robinson from the 1980s. But it was a shock to the system to hear the new crimes that Robinson had been accused of. He was also impressed with the size and force of this task force. Some of those assigned to this case would not only have to talk to those related or acquaintances to Suzette, but would also meet face-to-face -face with her internet friends. Those like Lore, who would give a crash course in not only the World Wide Web, but its dark and dirty corners and the lingo of the BDSM culture. And as you can imagine, that was a lot to take in. An official investigation was launched by the county district attorney in Missouri, Paul Morrison, in March of 2000. Morrison recognized early on that this case was nothing like he had seen before. He was aware that John was accused in the disappearance of Lisa Stacy, Paula Godfrey, and Catherine Clampett. They knew, thanks to Lore and Tammy, that John was luring women from the internet. They knew he had slipped through the cracks so many times before. Morrison's main mission, other than getting John Robinson off the street, was to make sure that these charges would stick. At the same time, Lore was continuing to talk to John online. She held on to hope that Suzette was still alive. Maybe she had been sold to the International Council of Masters. Robinson had no clue Lore was working with police or anything else that was going on right under his nose. He had no idea that police were now following his every move. He didn't know police were watching his home seven days a week. He didn't recognize that some investigators pretended to sunbathe in his neighbor's yard, climbed light poles outside the storage facilities, working with garbage collectors and so, so, so much more, all trying to catch him. But they needed something else, someone else, to contact John. In April of 2000, John found Vicki Newfield through an ad on a BDSM website. She lost her job a month prior and was looking for someone to financially support her. JR would be that man, telling her he was part in an elite group of dominance. Vicki was impressed. And when she inquired about help to find a job, he happily obliged. They decided to meet after John wired her $100 to make the trip to Kansas City from Texas. She would travel 700 miles with the hope of meeting John that day, but he never showed. He did, however, get her a room at the Extended Stay Hotel, which tipped off investigators as she checked into room 120, John's regular room. So here in this room sat Newfield, and on both sides in the adjoining rooms was the police. The next day, John showed up an hour late, explaining he had just arrived back from being out of town. Damn near out of the gate, Robinson wanted Vicki to sign a slave contract, but she was hesitant. But after making some edits to it, including a point that if the relationship didn't go the way she wanted it to, she could back out and John couldn't throw her out onto the streets, Vicki signed it. The ink wasn't even dry yet when Robinson wanted to get down to other business. He claimed he wanted to see if they would have sexual chemistry. It didn't last long, and when it was over, John quickly dressed himself and left. Before he did, though, he threw a large bag down, filled with some heavy-duty sex toys. The next day, when John arrived an hour late once again, he asked if anything interested her from the bag. 
He then undressed himself and asked her to take off her clothes and put on some spiked heels. She was uncomfortable and voiced that to John, all the while standing there in jeans and a sweater. Her inaction angered him, and fear set in for Vicky. John would begin to remove her clothes, slapped a leather collar around her neck. He handcuffed her and began taking pictures of her. And when she threatened to leave and go back to Texas, he stopped. They argued before he left. Now, Newfield would later call and apologize. The next day, John would come over again. And while performing oral sex on him, he slapped her harder than she'd ever been slapped before. And she was angry, but before he left, they seemed fine and made arrangements for her to go back to Texas and pack up her things to make the big move. But her anger would turn to rage. As John left, he took a bag of her sex toys, telling her that she didn't need them anymore. But they were all gifts and held sentimental value and worth $700. It was a bad idea for John to cross Vicky in this manner. But there was another mistake he made on his way out, dropping the slave contract into the trash in which employees with the extended stay hotel handed to police. A week after returning home from Texas, she was waiting for Robinson to call her about a potential van she could use to haul her belongings up to the Midwest. And when he didn't call her, she was pissed. She called his work phone and demanded her belongings be returned to her He would continue to dodge her and had every excuse in the book not to talk to her. When she was ready to break off all communication with John, she wanted her sex toys back before being completely done. And she was dead serious. If he didn't return them, she'd call police. He would threaten her back, saying if she continued to pester him about the toys, he'd turn her in to the Professional Association of Licensed Psychologists in Texas and show them the photos he had taken of her. She backed off for a bit, but decided, screw it, and called police. Little did she know police knew about her and about John. All sides were closing in and he had no clue. From the police, Vicki, Lore, Tammy, Carol, and then Jeannie Milliron. In May of 2000, Jeannie made arrangements with Robinson to stay at the extended stay hotel room, room 120, the same room Vicky had stayed in a few months prior. Just like Vicky as well, Jeannie met Robinson when he answered her ad online. The day after meeting, Jeannie and John had sex, but only after a severe beating because she wasn't naked and kneeling on the floor when he arrived. He immediately left and didn't come back for the whole weekend. On Monday, he returned asking for her social security card, close her bank accounts, and to get everything ready to move to Kansas City by Mother's Day weekend. While she was fearful, Jeannie did everything John asked of her. When she arrived back, the sex again was brutal in nature. John hit her hard across her breasts, took pictures of the damage he caused, and once again, he would immediately leave once it was all over. It was then that Jeannie knew this was not going anywhere. So after he left the last time, in tears, she went to the hotel lobby and asked the clerk for help. Detectives would later arrive and listen to her story. Because they were not sure if Robinson would return, they housed Jeannie in a safe house. 
For investigators, they thought that this had to be it. All the information collected from March until May, this had to make the district attorney ready to announce charges. He wasn't. Memorial Day weekend would come. The task force would again ask, was Paul Morrison ready to arrest John Robinson? No. It was around this time, detectives learned John Robinson had met a 17-year-old girl who had just given birth. The woman and her infant were living in their car when John found them. John promised her if she became his mistress, he'd be taking care of both of them. Sound familiar? Police believed it was one thing for John Robinson to lure women and have violent sex with them. It was another to go after a young new mother and her infant. On June 1st, 2000, District Attorney Paul Morrison began to draw up the papers for an arrest warrant for John Robinson. 10 a.m. the next day, police would quietly arrive at the Robinson property. Nearly a dozen unmarked squad cars would surround the place. A knock at the door. And while John Robinson was stuck in his head figuring out all the things he needed to do to manage the women in his life, he'd opened it to find officers standing there, face to face with a warrant in hand. Officers would read the charges against him, cuff him, and lead him out into their squad car. But now officers had another task at hand, finding hard evidence. More on that coming up in part three on John Robinson, also known as the internet's first serial killer. Episodes for Missing and Murdered in the Midwest are researched, written, and recorded by Toria Wilson. Production is by Elise Edens and Hannah Rodriguez. Thank you so, so much for listening in and tune in to the next episode coming soon.